I can't stress enough that it was not, it wasn't necessarily Jesus who saved me. It was my love for another man. Yeah. And I know that's not the narrative that some churches would like to hear, but you know what? I'll be damned if it's not the truth. Hello, and welcome to Out Loud, a podcast by and for queer people of faith in the South. Here, we tell our stories of varied religious upbringings, messy coming outs, and the gift of community with one another. I'm your host, Greg Thompson, and the voice you just heard was Blake Haney. Blake is a musician here in Nashville. Born and raised in Chattanooga, he's lived in the South, and more specifically, the state of Tennessee, his whole life. Blake went to school in Clarksville studying English and discovering a love of storytelling there. That love blossomed into songwriting during his studies in seminary at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Nowadays, he writes music while working full-time and continuing his theological studies at Iliff School of Theology. He released an EP in 2018 entitled Bottle Rockets, Booze, and Boys, and kicked off 2021 with a new single called Call You Mine, where divinity and queer love take center stage. He identifies as gay with the gender pronouns he, him, his. In our conversation, we talk about walking out of his childhood church and stepping into a new one, his decision to quit drinking eight years ago, and the God moment that led him to write this latest single. Blake is a kindred spirit of mine, channeling his questions of faith into his creativity, and I can't wait for you to hear this one. But before we jump in, just a quick shout out to all of our supporters over on Patreon. We have been so fortunate to have your financial support during the pandemic to continue bringing you new episodes of the show. We love featuring voices like Blake's and want to keep bringing the show to you. So if you like what you hear, consider becoming a member on Patreon. Your contributions directly finance this show and the hard work it takes to make it. You can give for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash outloudstories. And now let's hear from Blake Haney. Blake, I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So I want to start with where I start with most guests, which is simply to ask you about what the religious background of your your childhood was like, so we can kind of get a sense of the beginning of your, your faith story for us. Okay. I was raised in a small independent Baptist church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my family was deeply ingrained in that church. We were back row Baptists, but not in the sense that we weren't known. My grandfather was on, he was one of the deacons. He eventually became the head deacon. My dad and my mother both taught Sunday school at different points in my life. And I grew up singing in the choir with my sister. What did, what did you enjoy most about going to church with your family growing up? Looking back on it now, I think I can appreciate the community aspect of it, the small, tight-knit feeling of it. I, I mean, I essentially grew up within those four walls. Everybody kind of pitched in and helped raise me, and so that was something that I loved. It was kind of a home away from home. I enjoyed the, what I 
would consider now the performative aspect of church. It was very theatrical, <laughs> in yeah. my opinion, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, you you look back and the same people were getting up and giving their testimonies every every other Sunday or, you know, they were getting up to sing a special and they were crying and it, they had more trials and tribulations than Job and they were not afraid to share that. And so I loved just how dramatic it was. Imagine that. <laughs> Loving the drama. Did you find yourself being involved in your faith outside of church much at all? Was it something, did you have your own kind of prayer life kind of growing up? Did it mean anything to you outside of Sunday? In, I was the kind of of child who, who tried to pray. You know, we would do the now I lay me down to sleep. And then eventually, you know, you grow out of, of that. And my prayers were always prayers of, dear Jesus, just make me normal. Can mm-hmm. we just, I promise I'll be good. Like it went from, you know, God, if you're real, you know, turn off my bedroom light. To <laughs> God, if you're real, just make me straight so that I don't have to deal with this anymore. And, you know, when those... Spoiler alert, God didn't turn off the light and God didn't make me straight. Yeah. And eventually you just kind of... You stop praying or not necessarily stop praying, but you you realize that no is also an answer to a prayer. And it took me a long time to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was being gay something that you, you knew at an early age? Yes. Without having a name for it, I was mildly infatuated with the boy who lived across the street from me. Mm-hmm. He was so rugged, so so boyish. And, you know, I I performed that pretty well myself to an extent. But I think deep down there was, I knew something was different about me and I just could not put my finger on it. You know, I, music's a, a large part of my life and I, I've pose this question to other people is you know were there songs that spoke to your queerness that you didn't really know what it was speaking to you you know it spoke to you you just didn't know what it was and those songs were constant craving by katie lang and one more try by george michael those two always stand out to me i knew them when i was younger i had no idea what they were talking about and then like the light bulb just went off one day and I thought, mm. oh my God, they're talking about being gay. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of queer people have those moments when they're younger where they're like, I think this is, that, that was saying something to me. I just didn't know what it was. And I was, yeah, I was very young and very gay, knew it, but just didn't quite have the name for it. Yeah. Yeah. Something you just said there reminds me a lot of like scripture and how you can read a passage in the Bible and then pick it up a month later or a year later and it can say something different to you. And I think, I think 
music and film and so many things that we encounter in pop culture that are just part of our day-to-day life. Like I find too, I've been attracted to certain songs and not really knowing exactly why. And had I've had the exact same experience where then like years later, I, I come to it and I'm like, Oh, that's what that means. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so then kind of around that same time, it sounded like music was really important to you too. And was that something that you were getting involved in outside of church as well? So interestingly enough, I, I did not take to, I did not take to instruments very well. I did not take to writing my own songs. I would, oh my God, I would love to be that person who was like, I was writing songs in my journal when I was five years old and I picked up a guitar and I knew exactly what I was doing. Not me. That was, that was not, that was not my uh, spiritual gift. We'll say I, I loved music as a medium. It spoke to me more than anything. I loved and grew up wanting to tell stories in some shape, way, or Mm. form. And I took the scenic route to music and songwriting and being a musician. But I started at its core, at its foundation of what story do I want to tell? And I have been unstoppable ever since. (laughs) What did that mean to you initially, like wanting to tell other people's stories? How did that manifest itself? I loved doodling and drawing. I would draw little cartoons and then I would like write, write the story, like write out the story of what these two characters were doing. And I loved any sort of exercise in school where I got to write my own story or, you know, tell what you think happened to these characters after the story ended. I was all over that assignment and I love to hear people tell stories. I could sit and listen to my grandfather tell stories all day long because he had the best ones. And yeah, it it was just this idea that people wanted to hear those stories, that was a draw for me, that you could Mm. just make something up out of the air and people would listen. Mm. Yeah. And it has the theatrics to it too, of of having a crowd and people paying attention to you and that sort of thing. Mm. Was that something that you continued to kind of pull the thread on as you went into middle school, high school, college? Yes, especially so I was a very angsty teenager. I was then much more cognizant, much more aware by middle school that I was gay. Like I I suddenly found the language in the locker room. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, I am I am that. <laughs> and so I that's when I started to keep journals here and there of just like writing down what was going through my angsty teenage brain. And I I still keep those. I still go back to those and I can look at them and and just 
have so much compassion for that that kid who just needed someone to really just be there and listen and yeah. i really had no no one to be quite honest that i could talk to i i started later in high school i started slowly coming out to people but it it sucked during that yeah. time were you grappling with your faith and coming out at the same time much at all was that was that front and center for you then oh god yes if you look at those writings it's just <laughs> wrought with religious imagery just all over it like about how i feel like i've fallen from grace and all of all of this mm. looking back at it was so dramatic, but again, it was where I was, and I, I was so worried about hellfire and damnation, and you know, not getting to be with my family in the afterlife, and that truly was the most terrifying thing I could think of. You know, I was like, maybe I'm not doing this good enough or well enough. Maybe I'm not as Christian as I thought. Maybe I am being tested. Maybe I'm failing that test. And my 13, 14, 15-year-old brain was convinced that I wasn't sure I was going to make it out. Yeah. Did that narrative start to break down once you started coming out to folks? I would love to say that it did. It made things more bearable. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel as alone. I was 15, no, 16, 16 years old when I came out. And I, it was to my best friend, Maggie. We were it was a rainy day in March. We were sitting in front of her house. We had, I had orchestrated this whole Saturday where we went to the mall and just hung out doing what we normally did. And I pulled up to drop her off. And I was like, before you go inside, I have something to tell you. And she said, what? And I, <laughs> I just started bawling my eyes out and oh. so i was like i pulled out a pen and a piece of paper and i wrote it down mm. and i just handed it to her and she she just started crying she's like i love you and it was just like i've never i don't think i've ever felt a release like that and there was one other instance coming out to my parents that probably <laughs> came close to rivaling that. And how did how did that go for you? Where was that shortly thereafter? Okay, so before I jump to there, let's talk about the attempt to come out when I was seventeen. So I tried to come out. Okay, when I say I tried to come out, I was confronted by some materials that had been discovered on the computer at the house. I don't think I need to say what that was because it should be very obvious. So <laughs> parents found said materials on the computer and said, are you gay? And I just started crying. I could not say out loud 
what I really want to say, which was, yes, I, I, I just couldn't get that word to come out. Yes, three letters. It just would not come out. And I just said, but I don't know, just came out instead. And mm. I, I told my parents, it essentially turned into a conversation of how my parents didn't understand me, how they didn't even know I, the things that I liked. And, and so my dad attempted to connect with me and we went to play tennis together, which we didn't do often. We, we'd only done it a couple times, but it was one of my favorite things to do. And he sent me down after at the court and said, and I could tell that this hurt him to say, and that he was struggling to figure out exactly how to say it. But he said, do you think you are plagued by demons? Oh my. And I can, I've, you know, I've told people that and they're like, oh my God. And it's like, no, my, like the look on my dad's face was he was just so physically upset. Like he didn't want to upset me, but he didn't know how to present the question because he was kind of stuck in between. He was essentially brought up and kind of stuck in the middle of old school way of thinking and all of the progress that had been happening around that time. And so he was just genuinely concerned for me and my well-being. And was your family still going to church, to the Baptist church at that time too? Yes, yes. Okay. And I said, no, I, I don't think I am, but I don't know what I am, mm-hmm. essentially. And that was kind of where we left it for the longest time. I had attempted to date girls in high school, the rest of high school, college. I brought a girl home and... You know, after a year or two after we broke up, I was getting ready to move back from Clarksville, back to Chattanooga. Clarksville is where I was at undergrad. And I said to myself, if I'm going to move home, I'm going to move home on my terms. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be out. I'm going to be myself. And so the week... Probably no, it's a few weeks before I moved back. I wrote a letter and I was just as open and honest as I could be. And I I mailed that letter off. And what was interesting is before I moved, they came up and met me in Nashville and we had dinner and all this stuff because they were like, well, we don't know we'll ever get to come back up to Nashville. And so I'm like, literally, as that letter's headed home, they're headed up here. And I'm just like, oh, my God, that letter has, it's like ships passing in the night. Like that letter has just like, they've passed that letter in some shape, way or form. And it's just like, my stomach was just in knots for like three days. And I got a 
text message from my mom first on that Monday uh, that said, got your letter. I love you. My mom is very direct into the poem. And that's kind of, I get some of that from her. And I was like, okay, great. I was like, my dad's the one I'm like really kind of nervous about. And so I get a text later in the day that says, my love for you is deeper than any ocean. I will call you later. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to cry again. And so I did. I cried. I just, I was, it was just like the biggest, like, the floodgates had just opened and like the weight, literal weight of the world had just like fallen off of me. Mm-hmm. And I was like this, well, that's, that's it. I mean, I have nothing, <laughs> nothing really, or I thought, you know, I have, I have nothing more to worry about. And it was just the best response I probably could have gotten. And I know I'm very fortunate and very yeah. lucky to have that because I've had I've had friends who have not had that experience and I've had to listen and help them through those experiences so yeah it was it was a time and <laughs> was it something that they were able to kind of follow through on as you were you, you did you say earlier you were moving back home and were you going to be around them more? Was that something that went? Oh, I was moving in with them. You're moving in with them. Okay. <laughs> yes. So how did, how did that go with, you know, delivering this big news? It went as well as can be expected. It was, we were all, <laughs> we were all trying to figure out what this now meant because I was obviously not going to immediately start inviting men over to their house. That's another thing about coming out as gay in the South is just... My sister goes, so mom asked me a question the other day. I said, oh, God. And she said, does Blake have friends? I don't know what it is about Southern women who just have to present present it that way. Does he have friends? Like with an air quote around it? Yeah. And I'm like, does that mean... I'm like, what does that mean exactly? Yes, I have friends, but does like that mean sexual partners? Does that mean boyfriend? What does that mean? I've <laughs> never gotten a definitive definitive answer, but I would just bring my friends around them and be like, hey, this is so-and-so. This is so-and-so. Or, and just normalizing it. Just yeah. like I had norm, they had met all of my other friends before who knew me and it had eventually gotten to a point where, you know, I'd moved, I'd moved out and, you know, gone and lived at a few different places. And, you know, one time I was in a place where our washer and dryer was terrible. And so I would just go to mom and dad's and do my laundry. So my dad, just without being prompted, I'm sitting there folding my laundry and he goes, you do know that if you're dating someone, you can bring them around. Right. And I was just like stunned and I was like, first of all, I think it's great that you think I'm dating someone. And second, I just came to do my laundry. <laughs> but he goes, yeah, if uh, anybody has a problem with it, I will make sure it's not a problem. And so we went from, you know, like not knowing how to to deal with this to being very protective of me and making sure that I felt comfortable and was wanted in yeah. familial spaces.
So what what kind of followed for you after that that period of time? Was it a time where you were able to kind of more freely be yourself? Were you able to kind of make that step forward? What was that like? It was it was three years I was back home before I moved to Nashville. But before in October of 2012, our preacher who was notorious for not saying anything political really brought up gay marriage Mm. and i can't even remember the what exactly he said but it was about essentially god's law superseding man's law in regards to gay marriage and with this is with my my grandparent my grandparents knew uh, you know i was my grand my grandmother's special grandson this is at this point everybody in the church knows is this the same church that you've been going to yeah yep 20 plus years so people i went to church with were my friends on facebook and Mm -hmm. i posted about coming out so he knew and he still decided to say it anyway which is you know fine if that's his moral stance if he he wanted to take that that high ground then so be it but i walked out of that church mm. and my grandmother noticed because she noticed i was mad because i was not singing the final altar call song like i still think of that she she kind of mm. elbowed me in the ribs and was like i can't hear you and in that time, I went through a lot of searching. Like, I have no like no idea what this is going to be anymore. I have no idea who I am outside of, of this church. And I moved in with a girl after moving out of my parents' place. And she lived next door to a pastor, a woman who was a pastor at a Methodist Church in North Chattanooga, and it was going through a revitalization. And I thought, a woman pastor? <laughs> like, what? what is that? I, I knew that there were women pastors out there, but I'd, I'd never in my life heard a female preach. Yeah. And so we went to St. Mark's, and I heard <laughs> on that leadership staff, there were two female pastors and a gay man as the Mm. lead pastor. And I was floored. I was like, this is possible. This is a thing. I just got so into this church, this theology that embraced who I was and it was just the most life-giving thing I had ever experienced. And it sent me on a trajectory of just what comes next. How can I learn more about what I'm experiencing and feeling right now? That is the complete opposite of what I grew up with. And, and I cannot overstate this enough, but growing up in a faith that taught me that I was broken, when in fact, 
it did most of the breaking, mm. but I was able to rebuild that faith in a community of other people who were trying to do the same thing. Yeah. That was the consistent theme. That was the thread that ran through everybody's story was the church hurt me. Yeah. And so I'm taking a huge, huge leap of faith in even walking through these doors. And that's why that time in my life was one of the most formative experiences of my life. Yeah. That's great. I'm so glad you had that because I think that can be, not everyone finds that safe place to land after coming yeah. out or coming out in their church specifically. That's so, that's so important. I'm curious too, kind of how like another layer of your story kind of fits in. You've been pretty open about your sobriety over the past seven plus years and congratulations on that. Thank you. How does, how does your journey to being sober fit into perhaps this part or other parts of your, of your story? Yeah, it fits in, in that I don't think I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you today mm. if I hadn't been. So I spiraled in college and after, even after. I drank to fit in, but then more and more I started drinking to hide, mask, destroy, drown. I don't, I don't even you, you think of any... <laughs> Anything you can think of to kill or, or mask a part of yourself, I tried doing that with, with drinking. And I, even after I came out, I was still, I was still drinking. So at that point, it had just become so ingrained in my identity and who I was. I met someone in... 2013 and I for the first time really I like fell in love with somebody and I he lived in Clarksville I was in Chattanooga and so we didn't get to see each other very often and I'd planned a trip with a few friends up to Nashville and he was gonna, gonna get off work and drive down to Nashville from Clarksville, which is only about 40 minutes. And I drank a lot that evening before he mm. got off work. And needless to say, I, I was, I was an angry drunk. I was a drunk who, so in the same way that I like telling stories, I like spinning a yarn and a tail, my drunk self would spin stories in my head. And so I had made up this scenario and this story in my head that he wasn't excited to see me. Like, mm. right? And so that story started spiraling. Mm. And... I became a monster 
And I woke up the next day in our hotel bed, and I was like, oh my god. I was like, if this guy is <laughs> not already out of this bed right now, like I have no idea if he's still in here, I haven't turned over yet. If he's not in this out of this bed already, he's going to be out of my life by like the end of the day. Wow. And I turn over... <laughs> I turn over and he looks at me and he goes, you were stupid last night. And I was like, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, probably was. He's like, let's talk about that. I was like, do we have to right now? Oh. <laughs> and so like, all was well. And I went out, my friends and I went out again later that night and I had a vodka club soda with a an orange wedge uh, which is my drink of choice and that was the last drink I had at a bar any bar went home Sunday had a bottle with a little bit left finished that off and then that Monday it was done and I said to myself you know I he deserves the best version of me that I can give him. And so I stopped. And a few months later, we eventually broke up. The distance thing wasn't quite working for either of us. And, you know, I had a choice to make in that moment because I'd essentially gotten sober for him. Right. And so I was like, you know what? No, I also deserve the best version of myself Mm. and my family deserves the best version of me and my nieces and my nephews deserve the best version of me. And so I decided to keep going and I don't think if I hadn't had a clear head about thing like rebuilding my faith, I, I don't think I would have chosen seminary. I don't think I would have moved to Nashville. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have started writing music. I don't think I would be sitting here recording a podcast about having a new faith and, and how that, you know, looks for me now. And so it's all connected. You know, I, I can't stress enough that it was not, it wasn't necessarily Jesus who saved me. It was my love for another man. Yeah. And I know that's not the narrative that some churches would like to hear, but you know what? I'll be damned if it's not the truth. Well, and it's it's absolutely the truth. And I think for folks, if you know, I, I think I think for so many, the the love of God, the love of 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 Jesus Christ, you know, is is something that is preached, but ultimately best understood through the love of another person Mm -hmm. and and for churches that don't affirm the queer community it it, they're they're shielding 
our community off from experiencing that love. Mm -hmm. And it's when we can be in a space where we're free to do that, to, to actually love who we want to love that I think we can really experience God in a whole new way that heterosexual people have been able to the whole time. And it's, I I think it's the most tangible of if, if we're made in the image and likeness of God Mm -hmm. and of course we should love our neighbor because it's the most tangible of ways to embrace God, to be near God. Like it's great that if you choose to believe that God sent Jesus, that Jesus and and God are one, that Jesus was God in fleshed, I don't have that right now. But what I do have is my neighbor. What I do have is my partner whom I can hold and be with. That to me is one of the reasons why we are commanded to love neighbor because we essentially love God yeah, in a certain shape, way, and form. Yeah. And if God made this neighbor, then I should love this neighbor. Right. Yeah. So what do you use the phrase a new faith a moment ago? What is, what does that look like for you, for you now having taken classes in seminary and kind of explored your faith in your songwriting too? What is, what does that faith look like for you today? It looks like a faith without a label, <laughs> without a border, without a name. Um, I find just new ways to see God around me. And I I love that I can dip in this vast well wherever I need to. I can go back to traditions that, you know, for example, you know, you can have someone like Carrie Underwood who can release an entire album of hymns and gospel songs. And I just devoured it. Hmm. Even though that some of those songs were like, I can, (laughs) I can hear nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I'm like, I I can cringe a little bit, but I can, it's like, I heard it for the first time. You know, and I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm I miss these things like that. So of course I'm yeah. gonna sing sing it at the top of my lungs. I can, you know, I being in seminary and having an entire class, you know, going back to me not understanding what prayer was supposed to be or not having a prayer life, I took an entire class on prayer. Mm-hmm. And tried different prayer practices and then wrote a paper about which practice I thought suited my life the best and how I have put that into practice in my own life. What, what prayer practice did you come upon in writing that? And is that still something that works for you? Lectio Divina. So it's essentially where you use where you essentially you can go in and take like a passage or you can take like a phrase and essentially focus on that phrase like what you can 
you can think about what it means in the context of of the passage passage as a whole. You can think about what it means in context to the the personage of, of God or of Jesus, how it applies to your life. And essentially, like you carry that with you, um, the things that I pray about now. So for example, last year I sat with my journal and I wrote down a prayer. And this was the day before the George Floyd rally in Nashville. And mm-hmm. I wrote out a prayer that essentially just kept, kind of kept repeating the, the refrain, I'm not afraid of the people. I'm afraid of the police. Help me in my fear. And um, like I just wrote that over and over again. And I listened to Amazing Grace on the way there. And like a song that, again, has its complications, has its past, is a little, what's the word I'm looking for? Problematic. Now, some people may consider it problematic, but Mm. it was something that I knew. It was something that grounded me and something that I knew would help me stand firm in where I needed to stand. And so those are, I pray when I feel like I need the strength to stand up for other people. Yeah. And that's, I feel like it's, I've come a long way from, God help me not be gay. Yeah. <laughs> to God help me help others. And I guess I've never thought of it that way till just mm-hmm. now. <laughs> too i mean getting kind of into like your songwriting a little bit like if that's perhaps how you see the effect of the songs that you've written and put out there into the world as a way of not just telling your story or sharing your experience but helping other people yeah i i had a an interesting meeting at so when i was at vanderbilt divinity school i took a course called songwriting from a theological perspective. And I was advised, so that was when I really started writing songs. I'd written my first song ever. I was like, I'm going to be a songwriter. Like this is, this is like my dream come true. Like I finally feel like it's starting to happen. And so my advisor at the time was like, when I mentioned songwriting, he goes, you know what? I want you to schedule a meeting with Alice Randall. And I said, okay. Alice Randall was in the English department at Vanderbilt. And she also happened to be the very first black woman with a number one country song to her credit. X's and O's by Trisha Yearwood. And she had Merle Haggard cut one of her songs. So she's no slouch. And so... (laughs) <laughs> I set up a meeting. We have, we, we meet as a rainy morning. We meet for coffee and she, we got to talking and she was, we were talking about songwriting. She goes, you know, I hear the way you're talking and you don't sound like a songwriter. 
I was like, great, cool. That really <laughs> is exactly what I wanted to hear from this meeting. She goes, you do sound like a preacher, but you don't sound like a songwriter. I was like, okay, well, you know what? This was a great meeting. And, <laughs> you know, I took that as kind of a cha- kind of a challenge, but also I, I didn't, I didn't take it to heart so much. Like I didn't let it discourage me. And so I just, I kept writing and I kept writing and I kept writing and I eventually put out my own little five song EP in 2018. I was like, okay, I just need Miranda Lambert to hear one of these songs and we're golden. That did not happen. As a matter of fact, it shot me in the other direction because Mm -hmm. I was suddenly being approached as Blake Haney, the artist. It's like, I didn't want to be like, I love singing and I love writing, but I don't know if I have what it takes to do something like that. Certainly not anything in country, in mainstream country music, because I knew or felt it was not friendly to me. There was Mm -hmm. no space for me. And that wasn't, I felt like even more so it wasn't ready for the honesty that I was willing to put out there. Like, hi, Summer Thunder is about a one-night stand that I had. Hey, Bottle Rocket's Booze and Boys is about getting really drunk and like burning down half of the town because your ex cheated on you. Like your ex-boyfriend cheated on you. Like stuff that, you know, country music loves to talk about, but are they ready to hear a man talk about this with another man? Not likely. And so it's getting better, but it's not, it's getting better. Yeah. But again, you know, my mainstream. Yeah. The stuff I was making was more Americana anyway, more old school country sounding more my lane on that other side of the track. Yeah. And so the pandemic hit and a lot of my friends were putting their instruments down. Like they were just, they just stopped. And Hmm. I, and they were like, I'm not, I'm not feeling creative. I'm not feeling inspired. And I totally got that. But for whatever reason, my brain just started firing off on all cylinders. Hmm. And I sat down one day in March and an entire song fell out. And that song was called Call You Mine. And it was one of those moments where I've heard people call like God moments where you have to like rush to get the pen to the paper because it's all just falling out. And I'd never, it had never happened to me. I'd been so jealous. I'd heard like Stevie Nicks talk about those moments. I had heard like Elizabeth Gilbert talk about those moments as an author. And I was like, I want that for me. I don't know how to get it and it happened and it just came out and I was just like so thrilled and I was like I had no plans of releasing anything after that EP none zero Hmm. and I the more I looked at it and the more I sang it I was like I have to release this like there's it's it came out for a reason and so my friend Tom who is a drummer for the band Wild Child All of their tours just obviously halted like everybody else's. So he was like, 
I don't know what I'm doing. Like he was having like an identity crisis. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know who I am without music and without touring. He's like, I've really wanted to, to try my hand at production, but I have no, like, I don't know anybody that would be willing to do that. And I was like, funny you should say that because I have a song. And so I sent it to him. He came over, we talked about it and he was like, let's just do this. Just let's just do it for the love of making music, just for the sake of making music. Like we don't have to put, you know, any timeline on it. If you aren't like ripper and ready to go, I was like, the world is literally stopped. So I, time means nothing to me anymore. So I said, you know, we can take as long as you want to do this, you know, to put your, perfectionist spin on it and so we recorded it and i just fell so madly in love with it i i've the whole process of recording it of him putting the instruments on it even the cover art for it it just the whole thing if i never make another thing again I will be able to say, God gave me this thing and I gave it out to the world because literally my muse, God, whomever has the best sense of humor because I've been single for over five years. Like, (laughs) and this is about being in love with another man and it's divine language, language that straight people have been using for millennia. And... I was just like, I can't use this right now, but someone can. Mm -hmm. And I sent it out into the world. And, you know, obviously it's not, it's not a number one hit. That's fine. I didn't think it would be, but I get to look on Spotify for artists and see that it's being played by people in Australia and Sweden and South Africa and, you know, all over the planet, someone out there is getting to send this to someone they love. Yeah. And that means more to me than, than most anything I've ever done. Because I didn't have that song growing up. Now someone else has that song. Yeah. Like, hey, I love another guy. Oh my God, here's a song about loving another guy. I'm going to send this to that guy I love. Yeah. Mm. do you feel like this song sort of captures not only the like the romance side of things but also like your relationship with god in a way too so it's interesting you ask that because i played it for my roommate the, the for the very the very first time before releasing it and she goes she said something. She goes, oh, I thought this was a, a song to God. And I was like, you know, that's interesting you say that because I hadn't thought of it that way. The more I listen to it, the more I can see, the more I can see that point of view and perspective. It's just this idea of the refrain is I get to call you mine. And it's, I get to take ownership of this now like i no one else 
gets to define that for me. Mm. Like they're going to be jealous about this because I've got this relationship that they don't necessarily have because they're over on the sidelines trying to find reasons that I shouldn't, (laughs) shouldn't be in this relationship with God, that I shouldn't have this joy. And my favorite thing probably that I've ever written my favorite line, there's no miracle I need to see or taste water turn to wine. Like, I don't need those things anymore. Mm. I don't need a miracle at Cana. <laughs> like, I, I don't need to see Jesus walk on water. Like, I've literally just got my lived experience still being alive as a gay man. I made it through. I yeah. know some people didn't and won't but i hope that i can at least help more people stay around and know that they are loved and that they can have that relationship if they leave those spaces if they can leave those spaces yeah amen to that (sighs) that's what it's all about that's what gives me any hope in the work I do too is just to know that there's one other person that it might be impacting. It's, it could be one other life that's still going to be on this earth that Mm. feels valued, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I'm so glad you have that song. I'm so glad you have that for you, that experience. And then the, 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 the artifact of it that you get to hold with you and share. It's there forever. So what is, is, is any more music kind of coming down the pike or do you feel, do, do you feel like this song kind of opens up a door for you in a way or wh- how are you, what, what's next for, for you now? That is a great question. I, I, there's, there's a guy who lives in Spain who consistently reaches out to me and it's like, Hey, when are you putting out new music? He's like, oh, this would be a great song for that album you're going to put out. I was like, I really love your enthusiasm and your confidence in that. I have some other songs. I think it's it's hard to to write when you're working two jobs and trying to pay off debt and make yeah. it through a capitalistic society. But yeah. I would love to do a full album. I don't know what that would look like. And there's a, a novel that's been building in my brain for years that I'm afraid if I don't put on paper soon, it will go to someone else. And I do not want that. So I think I'm, it's about time for me to just finally sit down and stare at that dreaded screen and see what comes out. But yeah, I'm excited to dive back into prose again. Yeah. I love it. Well, I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on the show. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Saw a little bit of light in you That I couldn't find me Spent my whole life needing proof That a God made everything if you'd like to learn more about Blake Haney, you can find him over on Instagram at a Blake Haney. 
His latest single, Call You Mine, is available wherever you stream or download your music. We've got links in the show notes for you. And this episode marks our spring finale. We'll be back after a bit of a break. I have some exciting new projects that I can't wait to tell you about. Make sure you stay in the loop with the show by hitting subscribe or follow wherever you're listening and leave us a rating or a review. You'll get the latest episodes of Out Loud right when they drop and you'll help others find our show too. And be sure to find us on social media at Out Loud Stories and sign up for our email newsletter where you'll find quotes from the show, announcements, and some reflections from yours truly. You'll find all those links I just mentioned in the show notes. And I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Our theme music is by J.P. Rajiri, and we record from Nashville, Tennessee. Until next time, remember, friends, queer people have faith lives too. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thanks for listening. There's no miracle I need to see Your taste water turn Just having you next to me That's a miracle divine Boy, I'm flying To such angelic